Welcome back to This Film Not Rated. Happy to be a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Eric. I'm Curtis. So Curtis, the big question, what did you watch this week? Watched Wonder Woman 1984, and I watched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I want to react to those in ways that I can't be specific about. (laughs) Scott Pilgrim is good. Alright. Okay. So... Wonder Woman 1984 starts off with this kind of like Olympiad competition. The uh, whole scene itself takes about uh, 15 minutes to get to the simple point that uh, it's bad to cheat. Then it goes into an opening that you would expect from a superhero movie. In fact, it kind of reminded me of a a Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie in that sense, where it's a montage of Wonder Woman going across the city, stopping crime. It goes through a shopping mall scene and it ends with the bad guys that she's caught landing on top of a squad car that uh, the only way that I can describe it is Sam Raimi-esque. And is, so is that what the movie feels like tonally? Uh, and at parts it does and then at other parts it, it kind of switches to a different type of movie. Uh, Just one? Uh, eh, no. I would argue four. Like jumps from serious to goofy to to like and I don't know, like like funny bad, and then just to bad but boring. Well, I wouldn't say you know that on here because that's how you lose. But uh, I would say that the movie skips back and forth between trying to be a sincere comic book movie, kind of like the early X Men movies or a Spider Man movie. But there's two different tones in that already. There's Spider Man with uh, the sort of golly gee flip the comic panels, like, colorful approach. And then there's the early X-Men movies with the heavily politicized black leather, Mm -hmm. uh, which I feel like I got a lot more of, not necessarily the black leather, but in the Maxwell Lord part of things, there's a lot of 2000s X-Men movies in that. And then I feel like there's a lot of Indiana Jones in the places where they were obviously trying to replicate Indiana Jones. Right. And then there's an adaptation in there, in the midst of it, of The Monkey's Paw, which takes on its own tone. Uh, Yeah, they they kind of changed the rules with that, though. Because with The Monkey's Paw, the whole concept of that story is to be careful about what you wish for and and be specific. This one is different in that your wish will be granted, but something of importance will be taken away. So it's slightly different. In the traditional monkey's paw story, it's like if you wish for a loved one to come back from the dead, they come back as a zombie. So it's like, here you go, the worst possible version of what you want. Whereas this one, you do get what you want. Mm -hmm. And then just something else disappears. Which is strange, because they kind of like lean in towards the original version of the monkey's paw at first, with uh, Diana Prince uh, wishing uh, for Steve Trevor to come back. And instead of him just coming back, he comes back by taking over the body of someone else. Which would be a monkey's paw type of wish coming true. But on top of that, they also take away Diana's power slowly throughout the movie. This is the fascinating thing to me about the logic of this movie. Uh, Diana expresses that all she can see is Steve around a shot where we're seeing in a mirror what the actor, you know, looks like versus what he is on the inside. Right, directly implying that everyone else sees... uh, him as the guy that he's taken over and not as Steve. Yes. And so I understand what she means when she says that, but I do not feel like one can continually interact with someone who's not talking. You know, if you were in a sexual relationship, Mm -hmm. 
and continue to deal with the physically different shape of their body and stare into different <laughs> physical eyes. Well, the impression that I get is that for her, everything is Steve Trevor from body shape to everything. So for her, that's not an issue. The scary part to me is that the whole concept of uh, Steve Trevor inhabiting another body reminds me a lot of uh, Brendan Cronenberg's movie Possessor, which is a freaky concept in itself, and putting it in, in this kind of like lighthearted tone is terrifying. What I was thinking of more and more often is what's happening to this guy's life right now? He's disappeared. Mm-hmm. They're in his home. After a while, they didn't know if a wife or girlfriend was going to come home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so curious. He misses out on his job. Like, he doesn't know any of these things. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about all of this instead of what I believe the movie was trying to get me to think about or feel. Yeah. So an interesting comment that I kind of wanted to build off of was um, my wife, you know, Samia. Um, she pointed out that this is really a Maxwell Lord movie. I actually think to the extent that if you just flip the first W in WW84, you could just be Maxwell84, and uh, you could just turn this into a spinoff movie about him. Uh, His character, to her point, goes through a complete story and arc where a power starts to, you know, bother him, and ultimately he has to make the decision whether or not to save everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to sort of reinforce this, I like to point out the relationship between this movie and, uh, the original Star Wars, A New Hope. Obi-Wan's relationship with Luke is that a hologram asks for Obi-Wan's help to save him. So there's this person who wants Obi-Wan to be the hero and come in and save the day. Mm -hmm. Then Obi-Wan has an action scene with the, one of the big bads of the movie, Darth Vader, And that's a moment in which he teaches, you know, Luke a bit about what's going on. And Luke is about to save the day. And he comes in and insists on giving him the direction to use the force to not use his targeting system and change that over. Wonder Woman's role in this movie. Mm -hmm. There is a metaphorical, Mm -hmm. metaphysical presence in her life Mm -hmm. that is the focus of her story. That she wants to save and hold on to. Yeah. Then there's a action beat with the sub main bad guy in the middle of the movie mm-hmm. where you know she loses and then she comes back at the end to suggest that Maxwell Lord save the day yeah with a rope around his ankle she's speaking to everybody i know it's it is her victory in many ways but she's really at the mercy at the end of the movie of whether or not Maxwell Lord yeah, succumbs the, to what he sees with his son and yeah. whatnot I think the way Cheetah is presented in the movie is, is actually interesting. I I don't have too much of an issue with her. Like, uh, like her her uh, character arc is basically this person who is nice but is unappreciated. Then she wishes to be like Diana and unwittingly gets the powers of uh, Wonder Woman in the process. So she gets corrupted by this power like everyone else does with the with, with the Wishing Stone. And even at the end of the movie, she doesn't relinquish her wish. Her story is her fall from grace in in a sort of way. Where she starts out as this like genuinely nice person and then just gets more and more fucked up as the movie goes. Um, I can understand that, that concept of it. 
But as you said, uh, we all know that the reason she turns into a cheetah and the reason why she's becoming an increasingly bad person is not because of choices she makes willingly. It's because of the stone. Yeah. And we know that when she started, she didn't intend on... She's not a character who inherently desired power or the things that Wonder Woman has as a superhero. Mm-hmm. She wanted the sort of qualities that Diana Prince had as someone she knows. Yes. And so really, almost the same way that a stranger is hijacked uh, by Steve Trevor is a human being whose personality is warped and hijacked by a stone and then left sitting confused on a rock. Yeah, this is... To me, that's what I feel like happens. Right, and I I get that. I feel like if you didn't have the stone, a lot of uh, storytelling blips would make a bit more sense and would flow uh, a bit better. (laughs) Um, So that's uh, that's pretty much Wonder Woman 1984. The other movie I watched this week was Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. A movie that came out... 10 years ago maybe more 11 now 11 now started filming 12 13 yes i wanted to talk about this because uh the video game recently just got re-released on playstation 4 and pc it's a game that i somehow neglected to play back when this movie came back it was first released in my opinion the game was get your hand away from the buzzer representative of the video game that is implied in the style of the world in the movie. Yeah. And, the style, and it's so good! <laughs> the style in the world of the movie, I think a bit more so the comics. I mean, I, I haven't read the comics, but from what I see with the game itself, it's the, the art style is heavily based on the comics by the original Arthur. Well, Brian Lee O'Malley, I believe, provided the character designs and whatnot. So. Yeah. The movie itself is this... Uh, Highly stylistic uh, action movie that that looks like it should be a comic book movie, which I guess it is. It's hard. It's hard to come up with a way to talk about this movie without talking about enjoyability or trying to decide what it is. What Scott Pilgrim is, in essence, is a simple coming-of-age story about a teenager who has to fight through seven evil ex-boyfriends of a new girl that he's interested in. And the complicating factor to that simple story is that Scott may not be as aware of the history that he's leaving behind in terms of his own relationships. Yeah. And, you know, there's another side to the story of him sort of coming to terms with that. Yeah. And the... the, To speak to Edgar Edgar Wright as a filmmaker, uh, I do think he is basically an auteur. Uh, what people will describe as one. I, I, you recognize a movie made by him when it's made by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you recognize when other people are doing things that seem like they're trying to emulate him. Uh, you know, Edgar Wright has actually made a, a fairly short list of movies. Uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, um, Scott Pilgrim in between Hot Fuzz and The World's End, and then Baby Driver. Yeah. And his next movie, Last Night in Soho, mm-hmm. is was supposed to come out last year. And I don't know when it's going to come out now, but I want to see that badly. Mm -hmm. And so it's very controlled. It's very uh, precision-based. It's choreographed almost as much as the moves of the characters in front of the screen are choreographed. Yeah. So uh, the editing is, is used as a tool that is 
more conscious. You're you're way more conscious of his editing than you are in most movies. And it's interesting because he'll talk a lot in special features about different movies and and editing is clearly a part of the process that he has he's thinking about it from the moment he decides to make a movie. Yeah. And he's very interested in it throughout the process. Yeah. Uh direction specifically is something that stood out to me. Uh where Throughout the beginning of, of the movie, you uh, the, the uh, way that uh, Scott and uh, Knife Chow are, are, are framed at, at the beginning are completely in sync. Uh, and then as soon as Ramona Flowers goes into the picture, you go through almost the exact same montage. But then there are certain lines that separate Scott from uh, from uh, Knife Chow, like him being in a separate section of the frame. She's in the foreground and he's, he, he's, he, he's in the background. Or there may be a pole separating them when they're walking down a street. It's simple things like that that stand out, and it's... The visuals aren't subtle, no, but they are visual. They are not verbal. Yeah, it, it's... The the the, the whole idea of, of Ramona's backstory being fleshed out, the more you learn about her evil exes, not, 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 uh, and uh, not ex-boyfriends, as she'll say constantly throughout the movie, exes, is, uh, is a great medium of telling the, the story itself. So. It's a great medium. I feel like Edgar Wright has a pretty good... Ah, (laughs) Don't punch your leg. That's okay. I feel like Edgar Wright competently... Ah, shit. I believed the young adults in this movie as young adults. Yeah. That, that, uh, like... They all had their, their, uh... Their one quirk that made them kind of unique. Like, uh, Kim the drummer... It's kind of the uh, sarcastic, monotone one. Uh, That's interesting. I kind of felt like that was a little bit... And this is just an interpretation thing. But mm-hmm. um, that the idea that they have kind of a quirk is Scott's worldview. Yeah, it, it could possibly be. Like, uh, Edgar Wright's, when, when he read the uh, manga, said he always saw the, uh, the, uh, the story as, like, Scott's imagination running wild and it and, and it's his view of the world that you're seeing so it's quite possibly that it makes a lot of sense because kim you know there's the hint that kim has more depth before and then there's the bit where she you know tells scott to move on we know she's one of his exes mm-hmm. characters that get more rounded out are the ones that he's generally more interested in yes yeah, so like ramona is the one that gets the most rounded out uh, I would say so, yeah. I would say at least she gets some acknowledgement of the being a human being that, yeah. you know, makes mistakes and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense because then you look at the evil exes and they're all one note yes. to, to a certain, to, to a, a great extent. Stylized, individualized. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I would never really say one note. There's always a little bit of depth because, and sometimes it's left unanswered. Like the Katayanagi twins, mm-hmm. it's very easy to say... They're Asian, they're twins. Mm-hmm. But the idea that she quote-unquote dated... Both of them. Two guys at the same time. Um, you know, there's no suggestion uh, otherwise of polyamory. Right. Um, and the even if it was, that would be incestuous polyamory. So... Oh, yeah. You and- know, there's, there's confusion and complication and there's unanswered questions. And it's almost like not answering those questions allows their characters to serve the purpose they need to without right. really... And- I think the the the, the fact that uh, these are the only two characters that have no lines in the movie whatsoever, and it's at the point where Scott is the 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 most annoyed at Ramona and at the situation, 
So them having no lines kind of enforces the uh, idea that t- the, these are two people that he just doesn't care about and wants to get them out, out of the way as soon as possible. And the, yeah. the scene kind of emphasizes that. Yeah. And uh, you, in several conversations we've had about this before, the the climax of the movie is, is something that you've brought to my attention is the idea of Scott coming to terms with his darker self in the term of, in, 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 in the form of Nega Scott. Do you want to go into that a bit? Well, that's just the overarching point of the movie to me is the idea that as young adults, you start to face the world and you feel entitled to certain things. And we're not always aware of our own biases and our own issues and the damage that we leave behind. And this is the reason why I really do feel for Scott when I'm watching the movie is everything about his victory is through concessions he makes acknowledging flaws that he has. Right. You know, like he's living for having a girlfriend and he only wins when he decides, no, I'm, I need to beat because it's an achievement. I need to win for myself. That's the big, you know, win. Right. There's apologizing to the people that he's hurt. There's mm-hmm. all of this. And then you have the ultimate thing is this joke that, and this is in the graphic novels, uh, mm-hmm. Negascott. Mm-hmm. Uh, is evil him comes out and they they've fought before but the idea is that once scott has completed his arc and realized he's not a perfect person mm-hmm. his antithesis is not going to be all bad because he is not all good right so it actually makes a lot of sense that once he's come to terms with the fact that he's a gray area person who's not all great that the opposite of him also is not all bad and they just kind of hit it off yeah and it gets kind of brushed aside in the filmmaking it's, as a joke. I mean, yeah, it's it's also the 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 bit that stands out the most to me. Like like I'll I'll forget other aspects of the movie as time goes on, but like before we watching it, but that moment is one that has always stuck in my mind. So oh, the moments that stand out the most to me in this movie are the uh, choreography and the initial uh, fight with the first boyfriend dressed as a pirate, the vegan police. Brie Larson's rendition of Black Sheep, mm-hmm. puppet fighting, leading like for the uh, girlfriend, the ex-girlfriend. Oh right, right. Uh, puppet fighting leading to the choice of weaponry and the sound design in that scene in particular sticks out to me. Like oh, I yeah. always remember the slinging, zinging noises of of the weaponry that they're using in that. Yes, and just the distinct choice of action. The way that that's spread evenly from person to person, where you start with sort of a standard martial arts uh slash eastern kind of action and you move to american combative lucas lee star of action films guns ablazing but you know they don't really use guns in the movie so it's a more of a bravado competition yeah and then you move to a super powered fight uh that has to end in a battle of wits and then you move into a uh, weapons battle, which had not been fought beforehand, and then mm-hmm. you have uh, monster versus monster, yeah. and that's five and six, and yeah. then seven is it's it again a weapons fight. Scott hadn't done one yet, it, but again that one's more of a compilation of a lot of things. Yeah, I was about so there's to say physical, that. there's a lot. It's really a sort of a build up of everything. Um, what about music? Because that is huge for the movie. That's a big point. The different aspect of it that is 
Scott is a part of that world, but it doesn't seem to be Scott's world, is um, garage bands. <laughs> is, yeah. is is young adult you know wanna be garage bands and uh that's it's clearly that's Steven Stills characters you know his passion right and it's the soundtrack it's the background and they they yes love that it's right ah. it's uh the whole soundtrack for the movie is almost entirely diegetic uh, the only ones that aren't are when you get instances of bit crush music or Zelda theme stuff coming in other than that, every bit of music that is played throughout the uh, movie is something that's happening somewhere in the background. So what else did you watch this week? Machia. Lone Ranger. Oh my gosh, the Lone Ranger. Okay, so I promise to anyone listening out there, I don't really care all that much, but this is fascinating. Um, I watched a movie that I fell like talking about haha mm-hmm. uh called dead man uh made in the 90s by jim jarmusch starring johnny depp mm-hmm. and this led me to think about johnny depp's career as a performer also uh me thinking about it for one of the other podcast entries in the this network uh made me think about the physicality of some of his performances and some of the stunt work particularly that was in the lone ranger um, and so I p- put up a post on Twitter, uh, stating that, um, and I did this on Twitter, not now, so I'm not going to buzz myself. Well, you know, whatever. I said that, you know, here's for Twitter, it's black hole. I, I like the Lone Ranger from 2013 with a-, a gif of Johnny Depp. And what I was unaware of at the time was that probably a couple of days prior to that, there was a scandal that had broken with Army Hammer, star of the Lone Ranger, where... You know, for those of you who know about it, you know. For those of you who don't, uh, he basically exposed that a kink or a fetish of his is to think about or, you know, talk about cannibalism. And there's no technical evidence as of the recording of this podcast to suggest that there's anything, you know, further than that. But, wow. Uh, so to be like two days after Army Hammer comes out stating that, you know, he 100% thinks he's a cannibal, I'm like, I like the Lone Ranger, Yeah. <laughs> It made me feel real happy with myself. A movie where the main character, played by Army Hammer, has to witness his brother's heart being consumed by the main villain. Didn't even remember that. And and literally, there's for those of you out there on the internet who haven't yet considered this, this is going to be like a week from now by the time that this actually goes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully people <laughs> have made the association. But if you haven't, there's a little treat for you people who want to go meme the shit out of this. Uh, that Army Hammer, the way that Disney depicts cannibalism is by reflecting someone eating his brother's heart in his eyeball, uh, in order to make things, you know, go. So you've got that shot, um, and then you have a, a sort of hazy, uh, not really drug trip, but like curse trip shot, uh, where it interchanges him eating the heart with the guys. There's a, there is a mm-hmm. screenshot from a movie out there of Army Hammer eating a human heart. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not helping the situation by putting this out there. I'm aware <laughs> of that and I apologize to Army Hammer for any difficulty this brings him. Um, you know, but. Yeah. So. That was, uh, a very poorly timed sequence of events that, that, that got brought up. Yeah. So, um, so in case anybody out there is concerned that I was doing that to endorse Harmy Hammer, I don't really care. Okay. Sorry. So all that aside, 
What do you think about the Lone Ranger? That movie has CGI cannibal rabbits in it. It does have that. A horse gets drunk and stands on the limb of a tree that cannot bear its own weight while wearing a hat. Also magically somehow appears on top of a burning building's roof. They spent upwards of 300 to $400 million allowing Gore Verbinski to try to repeat the success of Pirates of Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, they even had a similar writing team, most of the same writers, and, uh, you know, Johnny Depp on board to play a quirky character who is a side character that pushes a character along while he has his own vendetta agenda. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I very mean, close to the same sort yeah. of story. And There's even a... In fact, the... The similarities between Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and The Lone Ranger are pretty extensive. I remember more about Johnny Depp and the team trying to reference the old-style Hollywood Buster Keaton things with with train set pieces and different stunt work and things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the more untraditional directing choices when it comes to montages for time passing and uh you know mystical elements of a story being pulled off these are the things that i find myself paying more attention to than the parts of the narrative that feel really typical uh the bad guy reveals himself to be the bad guy yeah and i will say uh william fichtner uh i believe he should be in fichtner fichtner uh, I believe he should be in more roles. He was the shotgunman in the bank in the beginning of The Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. He plays the lead bad guy, Cannibal. Oh, God. Okay, I- I'm not going to lie. I didn't even realize that was him. Yeah. That was, uh, that's so like, points to the makeup and costumes. Like, Yeah, they, they, they did a good job. Damn it. That, that's, that, 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 that's for both of us. I said points to. Points to is a pretty good way of saying something nondescript. I think points to is going to become kind of a phrase, though. I think that's a good way. <sighs> points to you for coming up with that. <laughs> I think you have to be in a certain mindset before watching this particular movie. One of the things that stuck out to me is while watching this movie, I got strong mummy vibes. And I kept thinking... Brendan about- Fraser mummy? Brendan Fraser money is uh, mummy. So like there 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 are Brendan moments. Brendan Fraser money. So there were moments throughout the uh, movie where where I'd see Army Hammer and then I would picture Bren, um, Brendan Fraser in the same role and how he would do it and uh, it's a, it's a movie that I think I would rather see. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? So I, that's that. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us about uh, about Machia? Machia. So Machia is this. Uh, movie that takes place in this kind of fantasy world about this uh, one 15-year-old girl who is an Eorf and who gets taken away from her home and stumbles across this baby. And the whole dynamic is about her being a mother and what it means to be a mother and then the, the growing tension between the two. And it, it's... So to clarify for some audience listeners, this is an animated film. This is an animated This is film. an anime, uh, Japanese anime, from the... Creator, director of... Of uh, Anohana. Uh, the director is Mari Okada. She wrote and either directed or supervised, I cannot remember, the anime Anohana. And a lot of uh, aspects, storytelling, styles can be seen in this movie from that show. And the 
central points of focus, I feel like, are immortality, family, and love. Makia is an immortal. Yeah. While Makia is an immortal, the theme of the movie itself lies on how things aren't immortal. It's the impermanence of things that give it meaning is kind of what the movie is building up to. There's this specific scene that hits home of what the movie is about early on where uh, Makia and uh, her son Ariel stumble across this uh, farm. It's the scene where they're burying the the dog and it goes through this whole explanation on how things have different lifespans and what time means to different things and some people are just granted more time than others and while that can hurt it's not necessarily a bad thing it's a, it's a very it's a very emotional movie and uh which is why you give it points right <laughs> um the animation in this movie is different from what i typically expect in the sense that there are details that are paid attention to in the animation of this movie uh especially in scope uh in trying to make the scale of this feel intimate and epic in different ways uh, I feel like there's a lot of careful direction in the artwork, and I don't know how much of it is directly attributed to this specific director, and how much of it is just from a talented, ah, uh, talented uh, art team. Yeah. Um, but there are like massive crowds of people, and rather than having there be blocks of similarly animated people, yeah, there are individuals all throughout this massive crowd. And they're fully animated. They aren't CG. Fully animated, and they aren't CG. And battle sequences with soldiers that are attacking each other across a massive gate. Like, yeah. Something that I kind of want to point out is the color palette that they use, where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the sense of color that I got was kind of like this kind of pastel. It depends. I feel like there was contrast. I feel like there was pastel when it came to certain characters and uh, emotions. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like there were a lot richer, darker, brighter colors when it came to uh, the characters being in hiding and the characters, yes. you know, going through hardship. Yeah. Like, I feel like the only times that I saw metal heated to the point of lava uh, was when the characters had long been on the run hiding on their own and they're like she's working in a diner and they're in a dark diner that's candlelit so there's a lot of wood fire dark you know yeah like... and uh actually the movie palette wise gets progressively darker as the movie goes on and the movie itself in tone gets progressively darker as well so that's uh it's an interesting uh thing points for that yeah point for that Ugh. ah sorry uh, as a first time viewer and as someone who didn't know what to expect, all I can say is I felt like the movie had a lot more content than it had time to cover. And so personally, even though I felt like the pacing reinforced a lot of the points that they were going for, sorry to use the word points again, but, you know, reinforced that sense of elongated time and immortality yeah. and all that, Yeah, the it it doesn't allow you to spend a lot of time investing in relationships between characters and right. different emotions and things. And I feel like some of the emotional experience some people may get out of this might be from them projecting personal uh, attachments and experiences. That's also. possible. Like, like the pacing of the movie is definitely set to the pace of, of how the Eorf, the immortal, per perceived time as opposed to the other people. So, Eorf. Eorf, right? yeah. Yes. Are there any other, like, major takeaways that you feel like would inform someone who's watching it like that you feel like people should pay attention to no I, I really don't know okay so the 
last movie I think I wanted to talk about was Dead Man. Um, and I saw this and I haven't shown it to you yet, so we might revisit it another time if we do like some sort of Johnny Depp episode or whatever. Okay. Um, but there aren't a lot of movies where Johnny Depp acts instead of performs. You know, there are movies like What's Eating Gilbert Grape and From Hell and The Libertine. Well, The Libertine is a little more of the prosthetics and performance and whatnot. But these, like, movies throughout his career where he is forced to be himself Mm -hmm. and, you know, try to invest emotionally in a role. And uh, he doesn't always get to do it. And so a Western Mm -hmm. doesn't really feel like a Johnny Depp lead kind of thing. A Western where the character is supposed to have, have all these heavy emotions and the drive of the story is usually character yeah but what happened is i started watching a movie and right before i started watching it because of hard copies because this came with a pamphlet Mm -hmm. i read a little bit about jim jarmusch and a little bit about the intent of the movie and a little bit about you know the inspiration for this johnny depp's character is named william blake he is named after a famous poet and artist who one of the most famous works that he did was artwork for the divine comedy Mm -hmm. it is a western looking at the relationship of industry pushing into the west the relationship between native american culture and that and it's told as poetry the scenes are divided by fades to black and fades back in the dialogue is not always realistic to the way people talk and a lot of things are done purposefully surrealistic Mm -hmm. in order to allow there to be breaks for the movies kind of act as visual poetry and sometimes you know through words okay and what that suddenly turns it into is johnny depp uh william blake and a native american who finds him when he's at death's door, whose name is nobody. He almost allows himself to shed all sense of purpose and identity just to be along for a ride deeper and deeper into the West, behind what's happening, uh, into what is happening with the Native American tribes. And ultimately, it's sort of like he just closes off from the world. Ah, it's it's like not wanting to spoil something and having trouble with sounding pretentious as hell <laughs> talking about all of this. Uh, because normally uh, trying to say that a movie was like poetry would be like whatever. But I'm saying literally mm-hmm. it was intentionally like segmented to function as a m- movie that is a, po- a poem. Yeah. And and this one is about a lot of themes that are in like William Blake's poetry about life and and death and all these different things and um I just I don't know there's there's something to Johnny Depp's performance when he is playing who you'd expect him to play. Okay. There's this uh, scene He's introduced to a gun that he's given by nobody. He's told this gun is now your tongue. You will now write your poetry in blood. And he, on the surface level, has this and looks sheepish and looks, you know, awkward at it the way Johnny Depp makes faces and does things. Yeah. 
And it's just something weird about later two men who are hunting the bounty on Johnny De- on William Blake's head. Yeah. Okay. To watch his face go cold and just ask them, have you read my poetry? And then kill somebody. Like, there's just something honest because it always feels like he's putting on a performance. So having him drop it just for a second, it's not the most emotional thing in the world. It's not like he's reaching deep to cry or to do anything like mm. that. It's just, it's just flat after putting on this person. And, there, and there's something moving about it. And that starts him on this spiral until he's eventually just... Just nothing. nobody? Oh. Yeah, well, you know, that's not, you know, it's yeah. not that he's nobody, but, you know, it's... it's he never really goes back. And then that's, that's, it's mm. a satisfying... Well, it was satisfying to me, so, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's interesting to me that uh, Machia is a very celebrate life look at life and death by looking at immortality. Yes. While this on is almost flipping that on its head. Oh. The you would think that that would make it very bleak, but when you it's almost like when and this seems like a lot to get from a movie that like I I could be reading into, but to me once you're able to accept death as a part of life, you're freer to see different things as important yeah you know uh when you think you're building something and you think you're immortal and you think you can win you know then you act a certain way when you understand you're vulnerable and you don't believe you're going to live you act a completely other way so yeah uh i got a lot out of watching that i think that's about all the time we have for today and i think we covered uh most of the movies that we really wanted to talk about so Thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm Eric. You can follow me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. And I'm Curtis. You can follow me at 90sGamer407 on Twitter. And if you're interested, remember to go check out the rest of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network.